Revelation 1. No other book of the New Testament is permeated by the Old Testament as Revelation. Its author seldom quotes the Old Testament directly, but allusions and echoes are found in almost every verse of the book. Revelation's message remains thoroughly New Testament. Church Universal is called to maintain a faithful witness in the midst of persecution, following the footsteps of the Lamb who died to free them from their sins, having conquered through faith, they're promised the blessing of eternal life in the presence of God in the new heaven and the new earth, all with the purpose that they worship Him and that He receive the glory forever. However, the imagery is drawn almost exclusively from the Old Testament, thus reminding the reader that redemption in Christ is the fulfillment of God's eternal plan. That's from Beale and McDonough. Let me throw some numbers at you. I'm a numbers guy. I like numbers. The book of Revelation, according to Eugene Peterson, has 404 verses. That's not debatable. Eugene Peterson says that the book of Revelation includes 518 Old Testament references. Okay, have you done, can you do the math on that? 400-some verses, 500-some references to the Old Testament. Almost never a direct quotation, but almost every single verse, sometimes one verse in multiple places referring to the Old Testament. This is what Peterson says, if you don't have a grasp on books 1 to 65, and book 66 has more references to 1 to 65 than it has actual verses, how are you going to make sense of 66? You have to understand the Old Testament. You have to understand what come before it has come before it in the New Testament. All right? You ready to jump in? Open your Bible. Revelation 1.1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. This book was written 2,000 years ago. The things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom and priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, am I am the Alpha in the Omega says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. All right, here we go. This book is a revelation from Jesus and about Jesus. That's what the genitive in verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, tells you. It is from Jesus and it's about Jesus. He's the author and he's the subject. He's the focus of the book. It's not about the Antichrist. It's not mostly about the mark of the beast. It's not mostly about one world government. It's not mostly about are you going to get a microchip under your forehead or something like that. The book is mostly about Jesus. Mostly about Jesus. 
Nancy Piercy. Perhaps the most succinct way to describe apocalyptic literature is to say that it describes earthly events from a heavenly perspective. Right there in verse 1, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. This book is talking about the end from a heavenly perspective, and it is talking about the present from a heavenly perspective. We'll give you one more image to help you think through what apocalypse is. Imagine you check into a hotel, you walk into the room, they've done a nice job cleaning it, everything's in place, the curtains are closed. You walk into this hotel room in the middle of the day, the lights aren't on, so the room is pretty dark. But maybe there's a little bit of light peeking in behind the curtains down the middle if they don't close exactly. You get some idea of what's behind the curtain, okay? When you walk into this room and you open the curtains, you can see clearly what's outside. Maybe before you had a hunch, you had a guess. Maybe they had the opaque curtains open and all they had was the sort of thin shade that just obscured your view a little bit. But only when you pull back the curtains, literally, only when you reveal or you apocalypse the window can you see through the window. That's what John's talking about when he calls this book an apocalypse. Okay, One of the things that is helpful to remember is that we have 2,000 years of history on our side to make sense of this book. There's a lot of people who have made a lot of mistakes about the book of Revelation. And we can look back and we can learn from some of those mistakes and say they thought they saw through the window clearly, but they were off. That's not what happened. They predicted this. They had a hunch about this. Those things didn't come to pass. On this side of eternity, we see in a mirror dimly, but Revelation allows us to see what is really true. What is really true? What is really true about the world? What is really true about human government? What is really true about power? Revelation helps us see these things. I'll go through these very quickly. Revelation tells us things, quote, that soon must take place. And it tells us that the time is near. There's been 2,000 years since that was written. So you may be tempted to look back and say, John, wasn't very near. It's been a long time since you said it was near and it was about to happen. You have to think about the book of Revelation in terms of redemptive history. And what John is saying is, it is the last days. Not you need to get ready for the last days. You are in the last days. Now, currently, present, in real time. You're there. The Lord Jesus has come, He's lived, He's died, He's been raised from the dead. There is nothing else that needs to happen in the scope and the scheme of redemptive history until the Lord Jesus comes back. Everything has been done, which means you are in the last period. That's what John means when he says these things are soon and they're near. The vision in Revelation was mediated to John by an angel, and the record of this vision contains the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. There is a lot of a lot of angel involvement in apocalypse. In Old Testament prophecy, usually God spoke right to the prophet and said, this is what I'm telling you. In apocalypse, God tends to speak to his people through angels. We'll see that throughout the book. In Revelation, the word witness refers to fearless public proclamation and authentication, usually in the face of tremendous opposition of divine realities and word and life. When I say the word martyr, you think that's somebody who dies. 
because they're a Christian. Literally, the Greek word martus is somebody who bears witness. It's somebody who opens their mouth, okay? In the biblical sense, if you have ever opened your mouth to tell somebody about Jesus, you're a martyr. You're a witness. We associate that word with death because for many of these people, opening your mouth and talking about Jesus cost them their life. And they had a choice. You can stop talking about Jesus or you can continue to bear witness. But if you continue to bear witness, we're going to kill you. So today, we use this word martyr to talk about people who have died because they were Christians. But originally, it's talking about bearing witness. And I'll just make the point. You may be privileged to live in a period of history where refusing to keep your mouth shut about the Lord Jesus will cost you. Maybe not your life. But maybe a friend, maybe a job, maybe an economic opportunity, maybe a relationship, maybe status, maybe a social media account. I don't know. But it may cost you. We may be going back to this idea of what a martyr really is. Uh, there is a blessing in this book. John says a blessing for those who read, those who hear, and those who keep. Those who read, who hear, and who keep. The book of Revelation, this shouldn't surprise you, contains seven blessings. There's seven of them in the book. And the first one shows up right here. If you want blessing from God, you've prayed that a million times in your life. God would bless you. Blessed is the one who reads. Blessed is the one who hears. Blessed is the one who keeps. It does not say blessed is the one who argues. It does not say blessed is the one who decodes. It does not say blessed is the one who gets the timeline on a schematic exactly right. Blessed is the one who reads it, who hears it, and who keeps it. It's not a prophecy chart. It is a call to discipleship. If you want blessing, keep the things that this book tells you to keep. Okay? I gave you the seven blessings there Chapter 1, 14, 16, 19, 20, 22, uh, in 22. All right? Let's jump down and let's talk about verse 4 to 8. We read those verses already. Uh, John to the seven churches in Asia. Grace and peace in this section come from the triune God. The triune God. Verse 4, grace and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. That ought to remind you of Exodus chapter 3 where God says to Moses, I am who I am. That's a direct callback. Is it a quote? No. Is it a direct callback to Exodus 3? Absolutely. It's talking about the Lord God. It says, grace and peace to you from the seven spirits who are before his throne. There's a passage in the book of Isaiah that talks about the sevenfold spirit of God. It's a reference to the Holy Spirit. And you're going to keep reading about the seven spirits of God. It's a weird way of talking. It's kind of odd. I have never stood up and said, let's have a lesson on the seven spirits of God. You just said, let's talk about the Holy Spirit. But that's Revelation's way of talking about the Holy Spirit. The sevenfold spirit or the seven spirits of God. And then we read from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. That's the very next point on your notes. Jesus is the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead, 
and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Here's how you tie all those three together. Jesus is the anointed one, the Messiah. Who was anointed in the Old Testament? The prophet was anointed, the priest was anointed, the king was anointed. He is the faithful witness, the prophet who speaks the truth. He is the firstborn of the dead. He's the great high priest who laid down his life and then took it back up again. He's the prophet, he's the priest, and he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is the king of kings. Jesus Christ is the one who loves us. He has freed us from our sins by his blood, and he's made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. He loves us, he's freed us, and he's made us a kingdom. John tells us that Jesus Christ is coming. Every eye will see him, and those who pierced him will wail. For now, we'll just make the obvious point that in the New Testament, the coming of the Lord Jesus is a visible thing. It is a public thing. It's not a secret thing. When you begin to talk about the idea of a rapture of the church before a period of tribulation, you've got at least two problems with what we just read in Revelation 1, 4-8. The first problem is that when John says he's made us a kingdom and priests, that's a direct reference to Old Testament Israel. He's talking about the church, and he says God has made the church, the people of God, Christians, a kingdom and priests. It's the same thing used to describe Old Testament Israel. You can't say Israel's one thing and the church is another thing. It's the people of God. There's a continuity. So this idea that we've got to get the church out of the way so that Israel can resume its activity is a thoroughly unbiblical idea. Also, you have the idea that the coming of the Lord Jesus will be a public thing. Every eye will see Him. People who tell you there's going to be a rapture of the church before the tribulation say to you, Jesus is coming secretly, quietly. No one will know. It will be this quick. He'll be in and out, and he'll get his people, and he'll be gone. They say that because they understand that our being gathered to Jesus happens when he comes. You can't separate those two things. But Revelation says his coming is going to be visible. Every eye is going to see him. It's not going to be secret. It's not going to be any secret showing up. If you're reading the New Testament with us this year, you just read First and Second Thessalonians, and Paul says the same thing. He says when Jesus shows up, the archangel is going to come down and blow the trumpet of God, and everyone's going to hear it and see it. The secret coming, everyone's going to see that. He says in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, let me tell you about the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered to Him. Those two things happen together. When He comes, we'll be gathered, and every eye will see Him. There will be nothing secret about it, okay? One, one pause right here. There's a lot of people in West Texas who are involved in ministry, and they say, we don't want to do doctrine, we just want to talk about Jesus. We don't want to get into denominational this, that, the other. We just want to tell people about Jesus. Which one? Tell me about him. As soon as you say anything about him, you're doing doctrine. You can't not do doctrine. And the book of Revelation is laying out a lot of doctrine about who God is, 
and who the Lord Jesus is. It is inescapable and is unavoidable. It's not our job to skirt it and say, all that stuff's not that important. It's our job to embrace it and to proclaim the full counsel of God's word. Okay? Off my soapbox. Revelation 1.8. It's one of two places where God the Father speaks in the book. One of two places where God the Father speaks. Once here and once in 21. Um, just a, a neat observation. If you look in 1.8, there's this description of God as the one who was and is and is to come. God is the one who was, who is, and who is to come. Put this up on the screen. You'll find God described as the one who is, who was, and who is to come in 1, 4, 1, 8, 4, 8, 11, 17, and 16, 5. However, in 11, 17, and in 16, 5, it does not say that he is to come. It only says who was and who is. It doesn't say that he's the one to come. Do you know why? Because 11 and 16 are about him coming. He's coming in those passages, actively coming. So you don't need to know that he's the one to come. He's coming in the passage. And it simply says, the one is coming. Which one? The one who is and who was. We'll trace that out as we get to those chapters a little bit later. Uh, he refers to himself here as the Almighty. I want to mention that. The Almighty. The Almighty shows up seven times. Seven Lots of sevens in the book of Revelation. Seven times he's described as the Almighty. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty. If you take away anything about who God is from the book of Revelation, it's that he is absolutely, completely, totally sovereign over every person, every molecule, everything that happens on the earth. Nothing happens outside of his control. Or his knowledge. His sovereignty knows no limits. He's the Almighty One. All right? Let's talk about John's vision. We'll read 9 to 20. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, write what you see in a book, send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. I turned to see the voice. It's an interesting way of speaking, isn't it? I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lamp stands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. Hairs of his head were white, like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I'm the first and the last, the living one. 
I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. All right, let's work our way through here. John identifies himself two ways. He's a brother and he's a partner. A brother and a partner. What's he a partner in? First of all, he says tribulation. Secondly, he says I'm a partner in the kingdom. Thirdly, he says I'm a partner in the endurance, the patient endurance. Guess how many times the phrase patient endurance shows up in the book of Revelation? I give you just, just take a wild guess. Anybody? Oh, man, y'all are smart. Seven. Patient endurance. Seven times. Do you think that might be an important theme to take away from the book? You're going to patiently endure. He tells you seven times. Pay attention. Patient endurance. Notice, tribulation is not just something that happens at the end. John's experiencing it now. And these churches are experiencing it now. In real time, it's not just an end time concept, the tribulation, the great tribulation. It's a present reality for God's people. Lad, these are the two main concerns of the book, the tribulations which the church was to experience and the coming of the kingdom. John tells us he was on the island of Patmos. We'll talk about this more next week. He was there because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. This was basically a prison colony. It was a gulag. There were marble mines on Patmos, and John was sent there because he was a martyr. He was a witness. He wouldn't stop talking about Jesus. I would just remind you, think about this. The Lord Jesus was so real to John before this experience. He's already on Patmos. He was so real to John when these things happened that he would not stop talking about Jesus even when they said, we will send you to a gulag prison colony and you will hammer out marble if you don't stop talking about Jesus. No one could see Jesus, but John knew and believed that Jesus was real and he refused to talk, stop talking about Jesus. John says he was in the Spirit. Uh, that phrase occurs four times in Revelation. Seven is an important number. Four is also an important number in Revelation. It's another number of fullness. Um, we'll talk about that as we go. John heard a voice that sounded like a trumpet. I think this is one of the coolest things in this first chapter. I heard a voice that sounded like a trumpet. You remember Exodus chapter 19? Moses is up on Mount Sinai. He's talking to God. God's given him the Ten Commandments, and he's given him the law. He's given him the very first books of the Bible. You go back in Exodus 19, you will read that as the people were down at the bottom and Moses was up at the top, they heard the loud blast of a trumpet when the very first books of the Bible were being given. Here you are on the other end of the Scriptures. The very last book of the Bible is being given. And John says, I heard a trumpet. It's a bookend for the canon. When God gave the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the trumpet was sounded. When God gave the book of Revelation, 
this trumpet was sounded. It's a beautiful, beautiful bookend. John turned to see the voice, and what he saw were seven lampstands and one like a son of man. I gave you a reference here to Isaiah 6 and Ezekiel 1 because both of these guys had a vision of God before God revealed a prophecy to them. There's a detail here. He's the son of man. He has a robe and a sash. He has white hair. All of these things have callbacks to the book of Daniel, to the book of Isaiah. I've given you all kinds of references that you can trace out. This robe and a sash is a technical term for the clothing of the high priest. We think a robe and a sash. We don't wear robes and sashes. To the original audience, they heard these terms and they were technical terms. Robe and a sash, that's a priest. He's a priest. You can't get away from theology. You can't get away from Christology. You can't just talk about Jesus. You have to talk about who he is and what he's done. He's a great high priest. His voice is like a waterfall. You ever been to Niagara Falls? Pretty loud. Pretty powerful. These are people who didn't have amplification. They never went to a Metallica concert. They never heard loud, amplified music. John hears this voice and he says, what's the loudest thing I've ever heard? Maybe a great rushing waterfall. This is powerful, booming voice that he hears. Jesus has a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Two-edged. One of the things you're going to see in the book of Revelation is that when Jesus shows up, he shows up for two reasons, salvation and judgment. That sword cuts both ways. He shows up to save his people. He saves, shows up to judge those who dwell on the earth. This is the last great vision that we have of Jesus in the New, in the New Testament. I gave you a chart with Daniel 10 and Revelation 1. Lots of parallels there. So I'm just telling you, you've got to understand the Old Testament if you're going to make sense of the New. We can't trace all of these things out, but you've got to keep going back. You've got to keep going back and connect the dots here. John says he fell at Jesus' feet as if he had died, but Jesus said, fear not. You are not ready to hear Jesus say the words, fear not, until you've fallen at his feet like a dead man. In the United States of America, we have completely neutered Jesus so that no one falls at his feet like they're a dead man. And we just keep telling people and singing songs over and over and over about God loves you, God loves you, God loves you, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you. It has no meaning. It has no power. No one is interested in that until you have fallen at his feet like a dead man. Until you've been like Peter with Jesus on the boat and the miraculous catch and Peter falls on his face before Jesus. He gets on his knees before Jesus and he says, would you please get away from me because I'm a sinful man. Then he's ready to hear Jesus reach out and encourage him. First you fall like a dead man, then you're awed by his grace. That's what Derek Thomas says. We're awed by his majesty and we're drawn by his grace. And it happens in that order. Uh, John's experience is parallel to a lot of stories in the Bible. People meet God, they have this overwhelmed experience. You can trace those out on your own. More theology about Jesus. You can't get away from it in Revelation. Jesus identified himself as the first and the last, the living one who died, and who is alive. This verse, Revelation 1, 
18 completely destroys the theology of the Jehovah's Witness. Say that Jesus was a creature. He was not God. This verse is Jesus speaking, and Jesus says, I am the first and the last. That's the title ascribed to the Lord God, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. He says, I'm one with Him, and I died, and now I'm alive. There's a unity there between Jesus and the Father, between God the Son and God the Father, the living one who died, and He's alive forevermore. Jesus told John to write what he saw and what he would see in visions. Let me point out one thing here in verse 19. Write, therefore, the things you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. That sounds like timeline language to us, those that are to take place. We think John's about to write about the things that are to take place down the road But what Jesus is saying to him is, I want you to write about the things you're about to experience after this, the visions that you're about to have. And we have to figure out what are those visions about. They may be about the future, there may be a timeline, or there may not. And we've got to be discerning in that sense. Jesus explains the mystery to John. Without this explanation, it remains a mystery. And the mystery is very simple. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. You can Google this and you can find all sorts of ideas about what does it mean that these churches have angels? Does it really mean pastor? Are we going to start calling Corey an angel? What does it mean that these churches have angels? All I'm going to say to you is in the book of Revelation, angel always means angel. Personal spiritual being, messenger of God, God's errand boy, somebody who does stuff for God, spiritual being. That's what it always means. And now you're thinking, explain to me what does it mean that a church has an angel? And I'm saying to you, I have no idea. I have no idea what that means. Like guardian angel, like, I don't know what that means. There's not a whole lot to draw from other than Jesus says, write these things to the angels of the churches. So take it for what it is. Next part of this mystery, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. I don't want you to miss this point. I'm going to get to the conclusion and we're going to go through it quick, but I don't want you to miss this. John hears a voice and he turns to see the voice and what he sees are lampstands. And there is someone like a son of man, white hair, eyes of fire, tongue coming, uh, sort of double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. He's walking among the lampstands, okay? This is apocalypse. This is a book that pulls back the curtain and lets you see what is real that you can't physically see. When you come to church, many times you may not experience or feel the presence of Jesus. Maybe somebody gives you an ugly look. Maybe Jake sings terrible songs. Maybe the Sunday school teacher is boring. Maybe the preacher doesn't tell any good jokes, and you leave and you think, well, golly, that was rough. And what this is is an apocalypse. It's a revealing. It's a pulling back the curtain to show you what's really true. What's really true, whether you think it's true, see it's true, 
sense it's true. What is really true is that Jesus is with His church. When His people gather together, Jesus is there, walking in the midst of the lampstands. He's present. He's present. He loves His church. How many times have you heard people say, man, I love Jesus. It's the church I can't stand. I had somebody tell me that just this week about one of their loved ones. Oh, he loved Jesus. He just couldn't stand the church. You might be embarrassed to be part of the church. Jesus isn't embarrassed to be with the church. You know, in the Old Testament, do you remember when God is helping His people understand who He is? One of the names, I want you to think about this. One of the names that the Lord God takes, He says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Have you read the stories about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? They're losers. They're the most embarrassing, bumbling, stumbling, pathetic, dense bunch of guys. And God says, I'm with those guys. I'm with them. You might look at churches in the United States and West Texas and you might say, man, the carpet is ugly and the silk flowers up front are so tacky and the people are, they just drive you crazy. And what you and I have to remember, whether it seems true to us or not, here or at any other true church, gospel-centered church, is that the Lord Jesus is walking amongst His people. He's walking amongst the lampstands. When you walk into this place to gather with these people, I'm not saying this place is magical. I'm saying when you come to this place to gather together with your church family, the Lord Jesus is present walking amongst the lampstands. Just an amazing thing to think about. Let's wrap it up. Wrap it up, chapter 1. Conclusion. Number one, Christians live by faith, not by sight. This book is going to tell us stuff that doesn't seem true to us. Okay? I'll give you one example. The people who got this book originally, these seven churches, they looked with their eyes and they said, Caesar is Lord. He's on the throne. His empire is massive. And this book comes alongside those people, and it lets them peek through the curtain, and it says, nope, it's not Caesar. Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. may not look like it, but that's what an apocalypse is. It's giving you a glimpse into something you can't see. So you live by faith, not by sight. Secondly, this is a Trinitarian book. All the way through Revelation, Trinitarian themes over and over and over and over again. We'll talk about some of those next week in the letters to the churches. Thirdly, Jesus rules and reigns over all. He rules and He reigns over everything. He's the Almighty. His sovereignty knows no limits. Next, he's the prophet, priest, and king. We talked about this. He's the faithful witness. He has the sword coming out of his mouth. He's the great high priest with the sash and the robe. He's freed us through his blood. He's walking amongst the lampstands. Where do you find lampstands in the Old Testament? In the temple. Who works in the temple? The priest. He's walking amongst the lampstands, our great high priest. 
He's the king, ruler of the kings of the earth. Next, he saves sinners. Saves sinners. He's freed us with his blood. And when you fall at his feet as though dead, he reaches out and he says, don't be afraid. Next, save sinners, worship Jesus. We'll get there this fall when we get to chapter 4 and chapter 5. The aim of this book is not to satisfy your curiosity. And it's not so you know when you need to start building your bunker. And it's not so you know how much food you need to prep for the... It's not for that kind of stuff. The point of this book is to move you to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And if it doesn't move you to worship the Lord Jesus, you've got to go back and read it again. That's what the book is driving you to. Last, Jesus loves the church. He loves the church. Church is not perfect. Church has lots of problems. We're going to get into that next week with these letters. And Jesus is not afraid to tell the church about its problems and to call the church to repentance. But He's freed us with His blood, and He loves His people. He loves the church. All right, that's chapter 1. Next month, we'll jump into chapter 2 and chapter 3. Let me pray, and you can get out of here. Lord, we love you. We're thankful for your word. Uh, This is a challenging thing for us to read this ancient book written to people that we never met uh, in a style of writing that's very unfamiliar to us and to try to make sense of what it means for us today. Lord, give us hearts as we begin this study to care more about the living Christ than the Antichrist. Give us hearts to care more about worshiping Jesus and being faithful as disciples than we care about decoding hidden messages and finding out secrets that no one's ever discovered. God, help us to be witnesses even when it costs us. Lord, help us to walk by faith and to believe that certain things are true even though they don't look true to the world and even though everyone around us doesn't see it. Help us to walk by faith, not by sight. Lord, I'm thankful for these men. We pray your blessing as we read this book, as we hear this book, and as we strive to keep this book. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.